Before we get going, I want to give a quick content warning that this episode contains references to content that may be triggering and difficult to hear. Some examples of this content are sexual assault, abuse, self-harm, and suicidal ideation. This trigger warning is to empower you as a listener to make a healthy decision about if and when and how you should consume this podcast. If you need support, please look at the links for resources we've listed in the show notes. Hey, everybody. One last thing. As your host, I want to wish you and your family a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. And stay tuned in 2023 for what's next of Stronger Than You Think. Now, let's get to this week's episode. We need more people that's fearless. Man, I'm ready to die for this work. And if a person got that fear in them, and these street guys or street women smell that fear, you're not gonna be able to impact them or help them. They're gonna stop listening. But when you come bold and relentless and ready to die for this work, not being just, just jumping in front of bullets like you're Superman, I'm not talking about that. But when you got that drive, that fear is not on you. And they see that love and they see this consistency. Oh man, I told you, man, since last year, December of 2021, I done seen so many lives change since then. I'm talking about killers. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Stronger Than You Think, a podcast by Youth Villages, and I'm your host, Sam Coates. In each episode, you'll hear a story of passion and resilience from an employee of Youth Villages, one of the top children's behavioral and mental health organizations in the country. Children with emotional and behavioral challenges and their families face unimaginably difficult circumstances. And it takes a committed, well-trained and supported person to show up for these children and youth every day to help them find their path to well-being. Join us to hear from individuals as those on the front lines of this work as they talk about their career journeys and how their own personal experiences fuel their passion making a difference every day guest this week is Troy Dodson. In the work done by Memphis Allies, we know that often the young men and women who choose to be involved in gangs or violence are doing so many times out of the need to meet basic needs and a lack of guidance at home. In this episode of Stronger Than You Think, you meet Troy, a supervisor helping lead Youth Village's boldest initiative to end gun violence in Memphis, Tennessee. Learn about his experience leading the south side of Chicago's gangster disciples and how he made a change and turned his life around, now helping young men find a way out of the life, thus helping make Memphis communities safer. Youth Villages launched Memphis Allies, a community violence intervention initiative designed to bring together community groups and resources to reduce gun violence and homicides so that children, families, and our city can thrive. Over the next four years, Memphis Allies will work with more than 2,000 youth and adults at the highest risk of committing or being victims of community violence. Troy, great to see you. Yes, how you doing? Great to see you as well. Been looking forward to this. So thanks for doing it. No problem at all. As much as you can share, do you remember what Chicago was like for you when you were 11? Poverty. You know, uh, gangs. Um, zombies, you know, people going on uh, crack, cocaine, drugs, period. You know, uh, back then, I think it was methamphetamine, not methamphetamines, but barbiturates. Uh, my father was hooked on them, so I seen nothing but hopelessness. 
So you're saying every day when you woke up or in the night when you were woken up, you just saw those things over and over again? Pain and suffering. Did people articulate the pain or was it just there and you could see it? Yes, they articulate the pain. What would they say? You know, uh, why did I wake up this morning? You know, uh, I couldn't feed my kids. You know, tears. You know, I watched my mother suffer, so that's why I hold, where a whole lot of articulation came from, from my mother. Did you have siblings? Yes. How many? Well, I got three brothers, two sisters. Were you the oldest or? You know? Next to the oldest. What was your older brother like? He was spoiled. You know, uh, he was taken out of the home, and uh, my grandmother took care of him. And uh, so he got pulled away from the pain and suffering, and she sheltered him. Your grandmother. Right. So me and my, my other rest of my siblings kind of envied him. Why didn't you get pulled? Uh, well, you know, uh, my grandmother played favoritism. I mean, I, I was never asked that question, so that's the only thing I can think of is that she was playing favoritism, and I don't know. I mean, that's a great question. So you were growing up with your siblings. You saw this pain and suffering, the way you said it. You saw pain with your mom. You saw struggles your dad had. Your, your older brother gets pulled, and then you and your siblings were left to just live through it. Right. So did you become the older brother then? Yes, most definitely. I'm still the older brother right now, and all of us alive. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they look for me. You protected him. Yeah. What were things like between your mom and dad, as comfortable as you feel and sharing? Well, my father used to beat my mama. You know, he used to come in and have heroin, and uh, that's all I can remember him just whooping her. I never remember no memory. I mean, the good memories with her and my uh, pops. Uh, I just remember him whooping her and beating her and, you know, uh, degrading her. So I can't fully relate to what you're saying. The only thing that I can relate to is my dad. I think he's sober now. I mean, we have a good relationship, but he was an alcoholic. And so that was real common in our family. So I'm somewhat familiar with the instability of addiction and how people react, how people behave. And that stuff is still stuff that I have to navigate in my own way. But so you're saying your father would come in and he would be on heroin and he would just start attacking your mom. That's all I can remember. I mean, I'm quite sure they had some good times, but that's not embedded in my memories. Just a whole lot of, you know, fighting and arguing and him coming in high. Now, that's all basically I can remember from him and their relationship. What about your friends? What'd y'all do? What'd y'all talk about, you know, up to 11? What was yeah, that like? Well, I mean, it's, it's pretty normal. You know, uh, we was hustling since we was four or five years old, you know, pumping gas and picking up beer tops. And, you know, they used to uh, give you 10 cents for certain beer can tops. And, uh, you know, we was hustling. You know, uh, we had the opportunity to play sports and things of that nature, but majority of the time we were hustling. What'd you have to learn? What'd you have to do to be the older brother to get through it and take care of yourself and take care of your siblings? Just be me. You know, I was always, the, uh, I'm a Leo, so, you know, I want to run something anyway. So I just felt like it's, it's my job to be able to take over, you know, and uh, plus my little brothers and them, they look up to me even to this day. You know, I just had that influence. Yeah, that's the best way I can answer that. So you, you knew you needed to be in charge and you liked being in charge and that's just the way it was. And that's the way it still is right. today. Right, and my mother basically delegated it to me. She gave me that authority. This your brother, this your next year, this your brother. You're gonna listen to him as if he's if it's if if he's your father. I'm kinda nervous too, so You're nervous? You ain't by yourself. No, you ain't by yourself. 
Wait, you're nervous? A little bit. Right now? Right. You know, I'm talking about some things that I haven't talked about in a while. You know, uh, as far as my mother, you know, my father beating her and things of that nature. I think any human being, thinking in retrospect, would have that kind of nervous, you know, thoughts. And No, I hear you. Well, I told you I was nervous. I yeah, just, yeah, no, I mean, I just no, thought I'm, I was I'm the only good. one. I'm good. It's <laughs> just that, I mean, for me to remind myself and have those thoughts in my mind, is it, it brings back old memories. You know, and um, I, I feel like that's the reason why I do the work effectively because I relive the pain, and, and I'm coming. Here, I feel like I need to be here to be able to heal and soothe that pain. So when I talk about my story, I relive the pain and the suffering. Again, we're going back to raw. Yeah, can you tell us what raw means? Real and whole. That's the way you've always been. Always been transparent. Sometimes to a fault. What's the benefit of your work today and the impact you're making and the people you're connected to by being raw? Well, I believe that uh, transparency brings about transparency. You know, uh, I think that my skeletons can help somebody. Uh, I feel like a lot of times people put things in the closet and they don't want to talk about it. Let's talk about something as far as like suicide. They don't want to talk about suicide. But I'm the type of guy to let you know that I, I tried to commit suicide several times in my life. And them skeletons alone can help somebody just, just having thoughts and suicidal ideations. What point in your life did you start to realize that being raw could truly make a difference? Because all my friends drew to me because of that. You know, with anything, you know, I'm just straightforward. I don't bite my tongue. You know, I'm just straightforward. If they, if they have any questions, they know, ask Troy. He's going to tell you straight ahead, straightforward. He ain't going to duck no corners. I'm going to give it to you straight. So you always have felt like, or at least you've seen, that's an asset that you have, and you can bring it to the table. And, you know, when life was going a certain way, you yeah. were that way. You created connections. You had a sense of authority. You had a sense of respect. Yes. And then when you experienced the conversion that you said that you've had in your life is entered a totally different trajectory, you're still the same Troy, you're still raw, and that's creating an impact in its own way. Yes. I've heard you reference that if you would have known somebody like yourself when you were young, that you would have listened to that person. Is that true? Yes. What do you mean by that? Right, because that person is transparent. He's straight to the point. And I believe someone of that stature— it's very influential. I mean, they don't have anything to hide. You know, uh, you know, a lot of us wear masses. We put masses on when we come to work. We put masses on when we're in public. But who are we really are behind closed doors when we take off that mask? And when a person unmasks himself and he can walk around and be himself, oh, man, that's, that's powerful to me. So I believe that someone like myself, I would have listened to at the age 11 and 12. What do you wish somebody told you when you were 11 and 12? That I didn't have to die the way that I was living. That you didn't have to die? I didn't have to die. You know, at the age of 11, I became, I got affiliated. You know, I started rolling with the outlaw gangster disciples first. You know, let's make that clear. I was an outlaw gangster disciple at the age of 11. I did 13, I became a gangster disciple. We took the O and the L off. Can you explain the distinction between those two? Well, the outlaw gangster disciple is an older group of guys. You know, uh, as far as the chief is different. You know, we got different chiefs. For the outlaw gangster disciples, you had U.S., Ulysses Floyd, 
And for the gangster disciples, you got Larry Hoover. So when you transition over from outlaw gangster disciples, which was considered renegades, and, and you transition over to gangster disciples, now you real. But at first you was renegade, and you didn't have no laws and policies, you didn't have to listen to nobody, you didn't have to take no orders, to be honest with you. But when you became a gangster disciple, there's laws and policies that you have to learn to be official. Why'd you switch, or why'd you change? Because I wanted to be real. I didn't want to be a renegade. Again, it goes back to being, I wanted to be somebody authentic. I didn't want to be a part of a branch, which was the outlaw gangster disciple. It was a branch of the gangster disciple. I wanted to be a part of the root. So I transitioned over, and then they had more direction, which came with the laws and policies. See, a lot of times people look at gangster disciples as being, oh, that's a negative group of people. But if you, if you knew their uh, laws and policies, and, uh, and I feel free, I'm going to share this with you. I'm gonna feel, I feel free to even recite one of them. I'm 48 years old, and I remember these, this one law from the age of 13, which is decreed. We believe in the teacher of an honorable chairman and all the laws of policy set forth by a chairman, executive staff, and the concept of ideology, organization, and aid and assistance, and all fellow brothers in the struggle and all righteous and devils. As we strive in our, in our struggle for education, economical, political, and social development, we are a special group of people with integrity and dignity. And in the vision of our great leader and through his vision, we can become a regnant power of people beyond boundaries without measurements. 215, 19. Now, if you heard what I just said, that as we strive in our struggle for education, economical, political, and social development, that's what they was teaching. But it took for guys that was negative, like the outlaws, and guys that wasn't a part of the branch, to kind of fabricate it, if that makes sense. And harm it. And harm it in a mighty way. There was a desire for respect, for order, for development. Right. For opportunity. Is that fair? Yes, fair. You're saying the other. It wasn't the same deal. It wasn't no order with yeah. the other one. You can do what you want to do. But when you became a gangster disciple, it was discipline. You would be disciplined for doing the wrong things or saying the wrong things. And once you became a part of that organization, you couldn't even consume drugs or you would be disciplined. In gangster disciples. Right, in gangster disciples. You couldn't, uh, once you became a member you couldn't do drugs. You couldn't steal. You couldn't break and enter. That's probably blowing your mind right now. You couldn't do none of that. That was laws and policies. You had you actually had a law and policy. One of the laws say tell you to to not disrespect. Disrespect any member or non-member, being disrespectful to others will harm you. So they actually stood on respect, not stealing. Not robbing, not hurting people. Now do your homework on that. Let me see what you come up with. Everything that I'm giving you is you can Google it. Right. At first it was like, like some sacred scrolls, but right now it's all over the internet. That's why I feel free to talk about it. You can Google it and find out yourself. Well, and what I did read prior, it began out of a place of community and support. That's right. And protection. And I think it takes somebody to have some intellectual curiosity to try to actually understand the context. Yes, sir. Is that fair? Yes, sir. I was pushed more to try to understand things that I had not taken the time to understand only because of the time I'd be spending with you today. And when I was doing that in my own way, which I could still spend a lot more time, you know, I had some biases and I had some assumptions that mm -hmm. were not necessarily right. Right. 
And it sounds, just from the outside looking in, from what I read, if anything, at the beginning, it's community. And it was loyalty. Yes. It was camaraderie. Yes. So what did you do in your teens? From what I read, you ran a territory on the south side of Gangster's Disciples. You rose up. You're very successful with your time there in that organization. Is there anything you can speak to about your time there? Well, it was uh, it was treacherous, man. It was I was in and out of juvenile. You know, I mean that's that's pretty much it. I mean that I don't glorify it at all. Period. You know, but that's 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 who I was as a young man. Came in, I guess I was just being faithful to the authority figures that was in place, that was set in place at the time. And uh, I became familiar with all the laws and policies because you couldn't rise in the ranks unless you was familiar with laws and policies. And those laws and policies at that time was my father. Those laws and policies at that time was my Bible. Those laws and policies at that time was my map on how to become a man. So were those men better to you than your own father was to you? Yeah, what? Man, it was much better. Much better. How? Well, they was loving. You know, um, they disciplined when, when, when I done wrong. Again, they, when you break laws and policies, you will be disciplined. And again, you couldn't steal. You couldn't uh, consume many addictive drugs and things of that nature. So, I mean, they held me accountable. It's my own father didn't hold me accountable and responsible. There was order. There was order. What were the things, when you think about the things that you respected the most in others? People that were older than you. The uh, loyalty. The loyalty. Giving me something that I never had, which is a male figure that was strong in my life. And what does that mean, male figure strong in your life? Well, male figure strong in my life, again, holding me accountable, you know, fed me uh, when I couldn't feed myself. You know, helped me keep my lights on when my mother couldn't keep the lights on. Things of that nature. Consistent. Consistent. Were your siblings better off because of your time? And gangsters, disciples. Yes. So it's a way for you to provide. Right. Take care. Right. So are you saying today, with the work you're doing and the career that you have and the impact that you and others are making, the most important thing that you can do is show somebody that you're going to take care of them and you're going to be there. You're going to be consistent. You're going to help them. When their mom needs to pay the light bill, you're going to help them get that meal when they need the meal. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Is that the most important thing? that somebody needs that's growing up in these pivotal years? I believe so. Is there a story that comes to mind over the last several years since you've had the life that you've had and the changes that you made of where you've seen this work firsthand? Firsthand as far as with someone that I've been serving? Yes, sir. Assistant, yes, very recently, uh, about a year ago. It was a young man, uh, house was getting shot up on a continuous basis. And... Uh, about 50% of my staff was scared to go to the house. So they sent me with um, another one of my coworkers. Again, the house be getting shot up. They don't know who I am. Uh, the person that I went with, you know, been in the home once, you know, so have a relationship with the moms. And um, I go in, and uh, my mind is wired to campus. And what I mean by that is I'm looking for someone that need help. I'm talking about teenagers, a guy that probably been shot, or a guy that might be doing a shooting that's in the home. So uh, 
She had an 18-year-old son. I built a relationship with him. He come out of the room. I asked him, did have he been shot before? He told me he'd been shot. Uh, moving forward, and I asked, can I give him a call sometime? I gave the young man a call, and I was even willing to pick him up in my own vehicle. Even though his house been shot up on numerous occasions, I was willing to pick him up in my own vehicle. Some might think it's kind of ludicrous, but I felt like he needed me, so here I come. And on my way to this young man's house, I got to just give you the details. He said, man, I got my gun on me. I'm taking this gun with me. I said, man, you can't take that gun. Well, you got to take the gun back in the house. You know, I'm trying to build a relationship with you. So the young man took the gun back in the house, jumped in the car, took him. I had a conversation with him. We ate lunch. Uh, he told me how his little two-year-old was suffering and had nothing to eat. That's the reason why he robbed. And that's the reason why he do the things that he does is because he can't feed his two-year-old daughter. I mean, son. This young man was stealing. He was still active in the streets now. House constantly getting shot up. So I took the young man on, asked the young man. He said they, was, they didn't have anything to eat. He couldn't be seen in the community that he, that is, that he reside in. So I took him out of town. Why couldn't he be seen? Because he didn't rob so many people and shot at so many people that he couldn't be seen. He was marked. He was a target in his neighborhood. So I got the young man and took him uh, shopping. and uh, took, Out of town. Out of town. Took the man shopping, and uh, the man, the young man was just marveled by him pushing the buggy along, and I'm just sitting behind him. He asked me what kind of meat should he get, and I'm showing him different meats and showing him how to pick fruit and showing him how to pick vegetables, and he was blown away. And I said, man, I need, I said, man, can you cook? He said, yeah, I can cook, man. I said, I need you to cook. Once you cook, I want to play. It's like, I got you. So he bought him some beef tips and some, some carrots and celery. And he said, I'm going to cook tonight, man. I'll make sure I get you a plate. He was so happy. I never would have believed it if someone else would have told me. This man was so happy. This young man was so happy that we were shopping. And uh, he actually got his food. And I told him, I said, you don't owe me nothing. But when you get on your feet and when you change your mindset, I need you to do the same thing for me. Because a lot of these young men don't want nothing for free. That's the reason why they rob. They just take it. They feel like they got to take it. But when you give it to them, it, it, it kind of make them feel soft. So I say, when you get your first job and you get on your feet, man, I need you to take me shopping. So you showed them that? Yeah. So however, it's it in a nutshell. The young man actually made me a plate. The young man that I'm talking about right now is working a full-time job. And this happened in a four-month time span. This man actually working a full-time job. Put down the gun. He did. Put down a gun. He's working a full-time job as we speak. What's that feel like to you? Man, it's, it hugs my heart because he was able to come in the house with food to feed his young son and his mother. And for him to be able to, uh, to, be able to shop and say, I did this. Not Mr. Troy. I done this. That's the beauty of this work. I get paid all over the place, especially when I seen that light turn on in his eyes. That's another check for me. What do you see when that happens, the light turn on in his eyes? I seen me at his age when the light was turning on in my eyes when them guys on the street were helping me and paying my light bill and keeping the lights on and putting food on my table. I seen that same sparkle in his eye. And like I said, I relived it all over again. You know, I wanted to do it. It made me want to do it again and over and over and over again. It become addictive that you can't stop doing it. Given what we're talking about right here and given the impact that you saw in that man's life, you said four months. That took four months. He's already cooked you that meal. 
you saw the light in his eyes, the switch. You saw him change. You went into that house that was being shot up. 50% of your staff didn't want to go there. When you look across this city, when you look across the Southeast or this country, what does society get wrong that if they did X, more stories like that would be told? If they took the first step and if they could see it for the first time, we're helping those. A lot of, a lot of individuals, they fear those that rob in the, in the communities that we serve in. So the fear keep them from taking that first step. And it's hard for me to be, you can't teach someone to, to, to take that first step. That's the bad thing. They have to be in them. Just as though you, can't have, you cannot teach someone passion. Can I be taught? It's something that I, I talk about to my guys uh, at my meetings, and I tell them, I say, I can't turn this off, man. The knob broke. <laughs> if, you left, if you leave the radio on loud and the knob broke, it's, I'm going to stay loud, man. <laughs> I'm going to stay working. The knob broke. It ain't no up and down. You can't turn this work off. If you can turn it off, this work ain't for you. And sometimes, again, it's to a fault that I can't turn it off. It's always on. And I love it. Is there burnout for somebody like you? Yeah, I mean, you can get burnout, you know. Uh, but I drink while I pour. <laughs> I was taught that. Drink while you pour. Who taught you that? Well, a pastor taught me that. What about with your wife? You were t- we were talking about your wife yeah. and your family before we started. How do you have balance there with your family? Well, that's a great question. We hit a bump in the road a couple of times. You know, you don't spend no time with me. I'm tired of talking about work. We could be eating dinner, and she would be texting me saying, I don't want to talk about your job today, so don't, I don't want to hear that. I'm talking, <laughs> I feel this like happened, you're talking about me and my home. This happens all the time. I'm talking about all the time. But my wife loved me enough. She just gave up. I'm like, it's him. That's just who you are. It's the man that I am. If I stop doing this, I'm going to start dying quickly. Because it's what you're supposed to be doing. Right. And she, and she began, beginning to understand it. She's beginning to understand it. Because I'm not stopping. When you were 14, 15, 16, 17, it, from what I read, it didn't say this literally, but it's just an assumption based off of, you know, what I was given. You got respect. You got opportunity. And you just got more and more responsibility. Is that fair? Yes. What led you to get out of gangster disciples? Jesus. How did that happen? Again, I was a Muslim. Um, when I met my wife, you know, she was saved. She'd be going to church all day. She a Southern girl. She born and raised here in Memphis. Where'd you meet her? Uh, well, at the barbershop. I, was, I met her at a barbershop, and um, she was saved. And it was during the month of Ramadan. And, she had, and I asked her, I said, uh, if you fast with me for 30 days, I'll go to church with you. She fast with me for 30 days. <laughs> Just because she loved you. And I went to church with her. In 2004, Easter, had a pink shirt on. I told this story a million times. Had a pink shirt on, I won't forget it. I'm sitting in there, they running around, they shouting, they hollering. And I'm looking around like, something wrong with you? What's wrong with them? I'm sitting there, everybody in the church crying and running, crying and hollering. And uh, man, I'm like, crazy. I can't wait to this old way. So, went into prayer. Church service was about to be over. They did altar call. 
And um, I got straight up and went to the altar and fell down crying. My wife never seen me cry. Crying. That's how I gave my life to Christ. You just felt something inside of you. I know what I felt now, but at the time, it was something that was, it was just, it had me paralyzed. I know what I felt now, but at that time, I couldn't move. And my wife, she she seeing everything go on. So about 10 gang members, 10 or 12 gang members came up and gave their life to Christ the same day. At that church? At that church. So your conversion experience just created the same opportunity for 10 to 12 more that were already there. And once they saw you and what happened... Right, didn't know him, never seen him in my life. What brought you down to Memphis? The penitentiary. Got incarcerated in Arkansas, and I got an interstate compact. It's another story right here. Uh, While I was incarcerated, I married a correction officer. Married her. She ended up quitting the job, obviously. Come back, got on my visitation list. I married her. Uh, I was going up for parole in about, I think, 18 months after we married once I married her, it was about manipulation for me. It's about me being cunning. She gonna get me out of this penitentiary. I got somewhere to go. I got my GED. I got my substance abuse treatment program certificate. When I go to parole, I'm getting out. So when I went up for parole, I got out. So when I left prison, I had an interstate compact meeting. I had to report here in Tennessee. That was my first wife. Now, after four months of marriage, she was diagnosed with lymphoma disease, Hoskins. And I became a caretaker. All oh, this is about the shape and mold and to be the man that I am right now today. I suffered watching all her hair fall out of her head. I suffered watching her taste buds change and her, she lose weight drastically. I suffered. And I watched her pass away. That's how you ended up down here. So you get out, marry her, serve her, and watch her transition out. Yes, sir. What'd you do after that? Well, uh, I didn't want to go back to Chicago. I couldn't go back to Chicago because I was on parole here. So I got into barber school. Started going to barber school, cutting hair. I was there about almost a year. And uh, my wife started coming in and... uh, you know, wanting to get her eyebrows arched and things of that nature. And come in one day, man, I had roses in my little station. For her? From her. Uh, oh, she gave them to you? And uh, Yeah, and I was doing poetry at the time, you know, and still could do a little poetry too, so. <laughs> nah, but I did a little poetry, man, and uh, and we've been in love since. So she took the first step? She took the first step. What's her name? Janice. Janice. Yes, sir. She sounds awesome. Yeah. Four, I'm to one short in stature, but big and hard. 14. Led me to Christ. Yeah, got the, she did, got the 30 days out of the way. She took me straight to church, and here I am. You sound free. I am free. Have you felt free for years, or is that a recent experience? Man, I've been delivered. You know, sometimes I look in the mirror and say, man, you ain't got soft, man. You ain't even the same guy. You can't even have the same conversation. And uh, I'm free from that. I'm free from being somebody that I'm not. That's not me. I don't want to hurt nobody. I've always been like that, too. I don't want to shoot nobody. I ain't want to be a killer. I ain't want to cause no pain. 
So, so now, even when I see myself in the mirror, I'm ecstatic. Not all the time, you know, but majority of the time. Majority of the time, I'm happy. I read a quote. This was in an article. You said, I used to love to shoot the smell of gunpowder, the way a gun jerked in my hand. Yes, sir. I was addicted to shooting. So if you didn't like to pull that trigger, if you felt like who you are today is to a degree who you've always been. Right. How did that happen to where you love to shoot? You love the smell of gunpowder. Yeah, a little had a jerk in my hand. And I done it because I wanted to impress who I was around. That's why a lot of guys shooting and robbing now. Cowards. But they're trying to impress the circle. What's the circle? The circle is their friends, the peers. They want their respect. Nowadays, being the killer and, 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 and hurting somebody give you a badge of honor. Now, being known as a shooter, if, if, if you're known in today's society right now as being a shooter, you the man. What do you mean? Like people, they talk about that person in a way that's strong. They, they fear that person. That person has credit. They fear him. Have, yes, a lot of credit nowadays. So you're incentivized. You're incentivized. The more, just the more extreme you behave. Right. The more credibility you have. The more violent you are, the more respect you get. Has it always been that way? It's all, in, in the streets? Yes. It just got even more in-depth. In-depth? Yeah. What do you mean? I mean it, it, and it got more spiritual. What do you mean by that? I'm talking about the music that they playing. It's more about drill music, meaning kill music. Just the evils drilling, of humanity. Drilling, the music that they playing encourage you to kill. It encourages you to kill. What are you most concerned about, given where you're at today? What concerned about what? Society, the city you live in, the country you live in. It's the killing. It's going to get younger and younger and younger. You got guys age 11 and 12 that's learning how to shoot AR-15s and uh, M4s. And, man, they, it's getting younger and younger and younger. That, and that's what my concern is, is that, that we need more prevention not just intervention. We need more prevention because it's getting younger. These guys are learning how to shoot guns at an earlier age now. And they're learning how to kill at an earlier age now. You have a lot of experience after you're a barber, from what I read. You've been doing work impacting people's lives for various organizations prior to being at Youth Villages. Is that fair? Yes. What do you see about where you're at now? And what do you see about what you and the folks that you're working with what are y'all able to do now that you might not have been able to do before? There's no limits. I mean, uh, I was working with a juvenile uh, organization that served young men from the ages of 12 and 18. This gives me an opportunity right now to be able to serve men from the ages of 17 to 30. And we target the shooters. We target the killers. That's who we want. That's your resume. If you got a shooting or you've been shot or you're doing any shootings, we want you. With, with the organization that I normally, I mean, that I come from, we weren't targeting shooters. If you, if you just had a criminal background, you come in, it's like a little tap on the hand, and it's over. But with Memphis Allies doing the work, I'm able to engage guys that got the mindset that we're seeing all over the news. And, and it's, a, it's a great opportunity for me to be able to help and assist and impact guys that got the, these demonic mindsets. Quite sure I'm not going in and hitting them upside the head with the Bible. You know, I do more walking than talking. And eventually they'll ask me, man, what church you go to? Or what you believe in? 
Uh, one more experience. Young man called me. Girlfriend left him. Real recent. Real recent. Crying. Got two M4s and one machine gun in his hand. Saying her boyfriend that she cheating with gonna slide on him. Slide mean dry down on him, pull up on him. If y'all didn't know that term. Thank but you. wanted to kill him. And he called me crying and said, man, every time I'm trying to change, man, this happened. People try to deter me from changing, man. I want to change. I don't want to live my life like this no more. I'm like, man, where you at? Get your room. I'm not leaving my kids. They got three children in the home. They want to leave his children. So I said, man, what you need for me? It's 1030 at night. I'm in the bed. What you need for me, man? I just need you to listen to me. So I listened to him. I listened to him. I'm agreeing with him. I'm, I'm, he asked me questions, and I'm responding. And I said, man, I need you to do something for me, man. I sat on this phone with you almost out. I need you to go to church with me Sunday. I'm trying to bring him to the cross at the end of the day. You coming. Again, this thing started off like that. He was blown away. We went to church, and he sat in my car. We talked for a minute, and I showed him my license. He was like, man, I didn't know. See? So it, it's, it's different to be able to do a... <laughs> See, it was a faith-based ministry I was working with at first. So that's the difference. Now I'm able to go fishing without having a tag on as being faith-based or being a preacher or being a man of God. I can, I can be... I can look like I'm looking now, and this man was attracted to what he see. And then when I took him to church and took him out to dinner, he was blown away. So... <sighs> Man, it's an honor and privilege to be able to do the work that I'm doing versus from what I was doing in my previous years. Fast forward 10 years from now, where will things be or where could things be to where you feel like you did a good job? You okay. executed well okay. with where you're at today. We have a Memphis Allies in Hawaii somewhere. <laughs> I'm talking about all over the 50 something states. I feel pretty good about that. And what can happen? When that happens. A lot of the young men that we took shopping and we seen that light turn on, it'll happen all over the country. We'll see lives changing. Not saying that we'll ever just stop violence because that's not going to, we'll slow it down. But I think that more lives will be impacted if we were just around the country. Do you talk to your siblings today? Yes. What have their lives turned out like? Well, my siblings still in the streets. The brother that's next to me, he's kind of leaning towards giving his life to the Lord, you know, uh, but I try not to force it on him. You know, my older brother, he's living a rough life. My little sisters, both of them living a rough life. My mother passed in 2018, and uh, I eulogized her funeral. So, yeah, yeah, my, my whole entire family in Chicago, they still live there. Anybody ever say anything to you about your own life, your own witness, and the impact that made on your siblings, given the fact of how you were the older brother to a certain degree and the path that you started on and then where things at today? Yes, my, my aunties and uncles, it's our inspiration. You know, I was like, I was the black sheep. I was the black sheep out of all my brothers. And what I mean by that, I was the crazy one in my brothers, you know, as far as my siblings. In my community, they thought something was wrong with me for a long time until they got to know me. And once they got to know me, then they knew that's, that, that ain't how he really, that ain't him. You know, so, yeah, my aunties and uncles, they, 
They speak highly on that. Last question I got. It sounds to me that Memphis Allies has found people that know what they're doing and know what they're talking about and that have respect. Is that fair? Yes. And they're trying to let these people, like yourself, execute the mission. Is that fair? Yes. It also seems that a lot of other times people restrict the growth or the execution because they want to micromanage how the work is done. Is that fair? I haven't experienced. You've always felt empowered to do your work. That's a great feeling. I mean, to be able to do something um, that you love to do, to be able to feel free about the work, I mean, the work that I'm doing, as far as just, again, like I heard you say something about being micromanaged. Um, you can't say this, you can't say that. I mean, uh, it's, 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 I feel free to be able to be me. I don't have to have. It's been jobs and courtrooms I had to go in. I had to have certain tattoos that's on my body. And um, But this job here, I feel like we got the right people. We targeting the right audience. Uh, we in the right communities at the right time. And I think that we got the right staff in place, you know, be able to make the impact that we're trying to make in Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you. It's been a privilege to be with you. Man, it's been awesome, man. I appreciate the time. You're an incredible man. Man, I appreciate that, man. All glory to God. From Youth Villages, I'd like to say thank you for listening to this episode of Stronger Than You Think. And thank you, Troy Dodson, for sharing your story with us. For more information about careers with Youth Villages, visit www.youthvillages.org. That's youthvillages.org. We have also included resources in the show notes where you can find out more information about our programs. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to support the show, the best thing you can do is recommend it to a friend. Maybe share it with someone who you think might need it right now or is looking for their next career move. On behalf of Youth Villages, my name is Sam Coates, and I'm reminding you that you are stronger than you think.